Heavenly Father, our good shepherd, we ask that you would come and that you would speak, that we would hear your voice. Father, overcome the dullness of our hearts by the acuity of the word of God. Speak to us in such a way that we can hear you. Speak to us in such a way that we want to follow you. Speak to us in such a way that we see the abundant joy laid up for us in Jesus Christ. Cause Jesus Christ to appear to us as a good shepherd. Let us see the willingness with which he laid down his life and the joy that he has abundantly provided for us. Father, gather us up in your grace into your son. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Welcome, friends. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. Thanks for joining us. We're working through the Gospel of John, and so that was the section that you just heard, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it and follow along with me. We're going to be looking at this section. This is, again, one of those sections where Time will, would fail us to exhaust the riches that are here necessarily. I'm going to be picking particular things, and there's going to be some stuff that inevitably gets left out. But if you want to talk more about it, I love talking about the Bible. So come find me, and we can talk about more of it. As I was thinking this morning and preparing to speak on this passage, I was thinking of several different themes, and I've been trying to think of stories that give you a little bit of insight into me and one of the stories that struck me, have you ever been lost? I mean like really lost. Have you gotten like turned around when you're out in the wilderness? So when I was out in Colorado, I spent a lot of time not in town because the mountains are right there and you can just go out into them. And the mountains are wonderful, especially when you're on a trail. Mountains get substantially less wonderful if you get off the trail and you don't know where you are. On one occasion, I was out with a friend of mine and we were hunting and I thought, well, I'll just take a little stroll from the place that we were at. I'll just go over this way, you know, 100, 200 yards, not too far. Somehow after the 100 or 200 yards, I completely lost my sense of direction. It was bright daylight even. I had no idea where I was. The tree next to me looked just like the tree behind it and just like the tree behind it. And I had marked in my mind two or three things to make sure that I knew how to get back. And so I thought, well, I'll go this way. And it went a little bit that way. And the more I went, the less I knew where I was. Now, of course, in this wonderful modern day of technology, I had a GPS tracker with me. And so I looked at that. But the GPS tracker, I would like to inform you, did not know where I was at either. <laughs> I had successfully managed to outmaneuver both myself and the GPS. And it was at that point that I really began to get a little anxious. You start thinking, oh no, how am I gonna find my way back? And I remember after a while of, of moving around, I heard the voice of my friend. And he wasn't calling out loudly, but I could just hear him. He was calling out, Gordon? Because <laughs> he could see me 
even though I couldn't see him for some reason. When you get all turned around, sometimes you don't even start seeing the things that are right in front of you. He was right there the whole time. I hadn't really gone as far as I thought I'd gone, but as far as I could tell, I didn't know where I was. But I heard his voice. And I tell you, there's nothing quite so relieving as being lost and then suddenly knowing you're not anymore. And when it's connected to a person, oh, that voice is the sweetest thing that you've ever heard. So today's main point is the people of Christ hear his voice and follow him into his joy. The people of Christ hear his voice and they follow him into his joy. Now this whole passage that we read, or that we heard read, is a figure of speech. And you can see that if you look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So it's a figure of speech. Another word that we have for these is parable. It's not quite the same word, but it's the same idea. When we work with parables or figures of speech, we need to remember a few things. They often use stark imagery in order to express a basic truth. They use stark imagery to express a basic truth. There are three things to remember when you're thinking about figures of speech. The first is we shouldn't overinterpret figures of speech. You can overextend a metaphor and it breaks down. We don't want to do that. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, someone reminded me this week of Alistair Beg, who says, you know, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. We're going to try and do that. Secondly, that we need to remember that the purpose of parables is to expose the posture of the heart. Jesus tells parables and he gives us figures of speech to expose our heart so that we can see what's really going on down there. And the third thing that we want to do then is we want to locate ourselves in the parable. The point of a parable is to find where am I in this parable? Am I a thief or a robber? Am I, am I one of Christ's sheep? Am I another sheep that's just kind of wandering around? Like, where am I? Who's the shepherd? The reason that we want to do this is because to those who are hardened by pride, parables and figures of speech become essentially incomprehensible. We see this repeatedly that the people who do not love Jesus and who don't have a soft heart, when Jesus tells them a parable, it doesn't make sense to them the way it should. They understand it, but they can't find themselves in it or they don't respond to the parable correctly. But to a heart that's softened by grace, parables unlock amazing truth. They show us something about ourselves. This whole parable depends upon ancient Near Eastern shepherding practices, which it's going to require us to do a little bit of work because if you're anything like me, you grew up knowing what a Western shepherd looks like. And because I'm Scottish, we would occasionally go to Scottish games. And one of the things that you see at Scottish games, sometimes if you've been up to Nova Scotia, you'll see sheepdog herding contests where a shepherd will, with whistles or with words, communicate to these lovely, wonderful sheepdogs 
how they want to corral the sheep or move them into a particular space. And I got all attached to, like, this is how shepherds work. They drive the sheep. And in the West, that's how shepherds work. They drive the sheep. They, they use prods or dogs or things that make the sheep want to move away from them. That is the opposite of how ancient Near Eastern shepherds work. Even today, you can see ancient Near Eastern shepherds working differently. They call the sheep. The sheep literally follow their shepherd. You can see this even, in, you can find this, I, I suppose, on YouTube probably, but over in Turkey, when shepherds gather together, you'll have shepherds from five flocks all gather together and their flocks will all intermingle. When they want to separate, the shepherds stand up and they start singing and they walk away from each other. And you can watch the sheep self-separate because each sheep knows the voice of its shepherd. In Israel, a lot of households would have had sheep. And the way that you keep sheep is with a pen. So they'd have walls, and on the top of the pen, you'd have thorns to keep unwanted persons out. They would usually have a gate, even if it was one pen for multiple households. And at that gate would be a porter or a gatekeeper. And these are the elements that Jesus picks up on to tell us something critical about ourselves. So the first, let's work through this passage and let's break apart the pieces and let's look at them and draw some applications out. So we're going to do four things and then we're going to come back through those same four things again with application. The first thing that we're going to look at is thieves, robbers, and strangers. They don't belong. Thieves, robbers, and strangers, they don't belong. In chapter 9, where we just came from, Jesus was addressing the Pharisees, and his words upset them, as you may remember. And like any good Messiah, when he has upset someone, he presses the point further. <laughs> his words continue uninterrupted from chapter 9, verse 41, if you were to look there. So let your eyes just go back up. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Straight out of the gate, you can see who the thief and the robber is, right? It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the thieves and robbers. They cast out the beggar from the fold of Israel. They are the thieves in this parable. They are the ones who do not come in by the door. And that they don't come in by the door means they don't belong there. They have no business dealing with God's flock. But these interlopers do not belong because deep down, they are in this business for their own gain and not for the good of the flock. Look down at verse 10. Jesus defines the thief. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The Pharisees are not so concerned about protecting God's flock as they are concerned about preserving the appearance of their own piety. So here, Jesus is referring to a passage in the prophets. He's using a portion of scripture that the Pharisees would have been familiar with 
to quicken their mind to what's going on here. He's referring to a place in Ezekiel where God condemns the evil shepherds. And here we need to remember that in the ancient Near East and in Israel and throughout the Bible, shepherds are regularly used as a metaphor for leaders. In just the way that a shepherd leads his flock, kings were said to be shepherds. Priests are sometimes called shepherds of the flocks of Israel. Judges are supposed to shepherd the flock of Israel. So this language of an evil shepherd doesn't just mean there are people who are not using best practices with their sheep. No, it's talking about leaders who abuse their followers, who are not ruling them well. In Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 5, it says, Son of man, he's speaking to the prophet, this is God. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. The picture is clear. Wicked shepherds are thieves and robbers. Wicked shepherds are thieves and robbers, and they're bent on their own gain. They're fleecing the sheep, and they're trying to get their own gain at God's expense. A thief does not rob from the sheep. Who does a thief rob from? The shepherd. The thief is attacking the owner. The passage goes on in Ezekiel. In verse 10, he says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand. I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Right there, now you know, you come to John 10, all the language that Jesus is using of I am the good shepherd, I'm going to find my sheep, I'm going to seek them out, I've got sheep that are in, aren't in this fold and I have to get them too. Do you hear it echoed, fulfilling Ezekiel? Jesus' mission is to distinguish and recover his lost sheep from the hands of the robbers. And even today, as I said earlier, gave you an illustration earlier, Near Eastern shepherds separate their sheep out from other sheep the same way that Jesus does. They call. Because sheep always follow their shepherd's voice. So that's the second part of this metaphor. The first is thieves and robbers, people who don't belong. The second part is the shepherd's voice. True sheep listen to their shepherd. True sheep Listen to their shepherd. So look at verses two through four. Jesus says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, 
he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So notice here also that just as the sheep know and they follow their shepherd's voice, notice how the shepherd knows and calls each and every one of his own sheep. So it's not just like the shepherd goes singing away from the flock and whoever happens to follow him, I guess that's my flock. He knows every single one of them. He knows them by name. He is singing and watching to make sure that every single one of his own comes out with him. There is no way that the shepherd would lose even one sheep. So the sheep are not the shepherds merely by virtue of proximity. In other words, that they just happen to be close to him and therefore they are his. No, he says he calls his own sheep by name and he leads out all his own. The good shepherd knows, calls, and individually draws each and every sheep by the power of his word. There is no possibility that the shepherd would forget even one of his own. Jesus will tell the disciples elsewhere that this is why the end cannot come yet, because he's gathering in every single one of his sheep. To what end? Verse 16, so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. So, thieves and robbers, they don't belong. Shepherd's voice, true sheep listen to and follow their shepherd. Thirdly, the door. There is only one way into the household of faith. So just as in a typical sheep pen, there would be only one entry. So it is in this parable. In verse one, we can see that the door is the legitimate entry for the sheep and the shepherds. Everybody who wants to deal with this flock that wants to do so honestly needs to come through the door. It is how true shepherds gain access, unlike thieves. They must come over the wall. In verse 7, Jesus intensifies this idea of the door. In verse 7, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. So, not only, oh, sorry, uh, saying access to God's household must come only and always through him. He is the door. In verse 9, Jesus expands further. Not only is he how true shepherds gain access to the sheep, but he is also the only way a sheep finds true pasture. So he's the door both for shepherd and the sheep. Thieves and robbers avoid him, and any sheep that wants good pasture needs to come through him. There is no other way, either to the sheep or to the pasture, except through the door. In this way, the door is not only what limits and prevents outside dangers from coming in, it opens the path to the joy of God's bountiful provision. And that's what Jesus means by verse 9 when he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
It's not as though Jesus is merely just delivering them from the dangers of the world. Jesus is delivering them out of the danger and into God's provision. The door then is the way in and out for the sheep, the way into safety, and the way out to joyful provision. And that brings us to our fourth element, the good shepherd. Over and against the Pharisees' self-centered, legalistic leadership, Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd. So this, by this, he sets himself apart in four ways. There's four things that distinguish the good shepherd from the evil shepherds, the thieves and the robbers of the Pharisees that the flock has been subjected to. First, he lays down his life. Thieves and robbers don't do that. Secondly, he lays down his life for each and all of his sheep. He lays down his life for each individual and all his sheep. Thirdly, he lays it down voluntarily. No one compels him to do this. He chooses to do this. This is his desire. He lays down his life for his sheep. And fourth, he lays it down so that he can take it up again. The purpose of him laying down his life is so that he can take it up again. So look at verses 14 through 16. You'll see these. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So the first and most significant mark is that this shepherd, rather than preserving himself at the expense of the sheep, will lay down his life for their good. I had a friend at some point, he served as a member of the Marines, and he had many, many sayings that he would talk about, but one of the things that he defined the Marines by was he would say, you know, other people hear the sound of gunfire and they run away, Marines run to the sound of the gunfire. The good shepherd sees the wolf and does not try and pretend that it's not there. He doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't try and say, well, let's just move the whole flock over here. Maybe the wolf won't follow us. No, he sees the wolf. He goes and takes care of the problem. The good shepherd runs toward the sound of the gunfire, as it were. The most significant mark of this shepherd is that rather than preserving himself at the expense of the sheep, he lays down his life for their good. And this is not merely a collective act, meaning as though the shepherd were to lay down his life in order to preserve just a flock, but not specific sheep. The shepherd lays down his life to preserve, yes, the flock, and to preserve them each particularly. Remember, he knows each and every one of his sheep by name, and he preserves all of them, both collectively and individually. 
he knows them, notice, notice how he describes his knowledge of them. He knows them in the way that he knows his father. His knowledge of his own flock is comparable to how the persons of the Trinity know and relate to one another. He says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, that is how intimately Jesus knows his sheep. He knows you the way he knows his Father. Oh, friend, if you are a member of Jesus' flock, you are known not as just a number within some vast multitude, but individually and particularly and specifically. You yourself are known, chosen, and precious. It is good and right to say that were you the only member of Christ's flock, Christ would have gone to the cross to save you. He did not go to the cross to save only you. He went to the cross to save all his flock, but it is nonetheless true that he would have gone to the cross to save you. He knows his flock. He loves his flock. He knows you, and he loves you, and he went to save you. In verse 12, then, we see, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. So that's the contrast. Then it is the good shepherd who never abandons his sheep. We might feel like it sometimes, we might feel like we don't know where he is, but he has not left his sheep. He is a good shepherd. He does not leave us. Instead, he dies in their place. In verse 15, he lays down his life for the sheep. Nor does he simply die because he must. No, the good shepherd lays down his life willingly for the sheep. Look at verse 18. He says, no one takes it from me. That's his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus does not go to the cross with a sigh of dutiful commitment, like a reluctant toddler. He goes in the agony of loving and obedient devotion. Even as I was learning, you know, I, my, one of my chores when I was growing up in the household was to set the table, and sometimes my mother would have to remind me, and she'd say, Gordon, please come and set the table, and I'd go, ah, okay. You know, and then I'd go, and I'd set the table, and I'm like, that, that was a kind of obedience. It was an externalized obedience. That wasn't true, perfect obedience, right? It's true and perfect obedience is right away, all the way, with a good attitude. Christ doesn't go to save his sheep. Like the father said, come on, Jesus, you need to go save your sheep. Oh, fine, all right, I'll go and save them, gosh. <clears throat> Instead, and I know this is personal for some of us, but it was the only illustration that came to mind. He goes to the cross like a man jumps into icy water to save his friend. In the church that I interned at in Chicago, tragedy happened there. Um, a man took his children out boating on the lake and in the course of an accident they fell into the water and he had both of them and he, they both fell in and he jumped in and he tried to save them and he died trying. Jesus sees the danger that we're in 
And he doesn't reluctantly, oh, I suppose, I guess I'm the only one. No, he sees our danger and he rushes in. But he, unlike us, who can be so easily overpowered by the elements of this world, who can be easily overpowered by the difficulties that surround us and how so quickly a tragedy just overcomes us and we succumb to it, Jesus triumphs over the tragedy. Jesus can deliver not one, not two, not three, not four. He can deliver every single one of his sheep. Still more profoundly, if you look at verses 17 and 18, he says, for this reason the Father loves me. This is why God the Father loves Christ, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Folks, remember this when he's talking to Pilate. <laughs> remember this when he is talking to Pilate, when the, when the systems of the world say, I have the power to put you to death. Pay attention to me. Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. And that's why the Father loves him. The word that in I lay, my, lay down my life, that is short for in order that. Jesus goes to the cross in order that he can rise in triumph over death and hell. His death on the cross was not a hopeful act, a desperate plea. Maybe someone will come to the Father as a result of this. No, it was a determined, definitive, purposeful act by which he ransomed every single one of his sheep. He didn't leave a single one behind. He knew exactly what he was doing when he went to the cross. When he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is naming in his heart every single one of his sheep, and he knows he goes to the cross to ransom them, and he knows that he will. And he's not lying in the grave wondering, will the Lord vindicate me? He knows that it is impossible for death to hold him. It was not an experiment good shepherd does for the sheep what they cannot do for themselves. He willingly sacrifices himself to save them and to glorify God. And it is this character, this selfless humility, this absolute commitment to the glory of God that forms the basis of the intertrinitarian love. This is the reason the Father loves me. Because I died and I rose again to ransom all my sheep. And while I want to just sit here and drink that in for the rest of this time, we got to move to our applications. So let's go back through now and let's draw out some potential applications. One, vis-a-vis -vis the thieves and robbers, beware false teachers. Beware false teachers. Jesus condemning spiritual sheep wrestlers, false teachers, people who attempt to gain an unauthorized access to and who attempt to gain profit from God's people. A false teacher is someone who tries to gain unauthorized access to and to profit from, in an illicit way, God's people. Is someone who's trying to steal from God. Now, why does this matter? Because we, as God's sheep, are actually charged with so knowing the voice of our Savior that we can quickly discern and expose false teachers. And we should not arrive at these decisions lightly, 
But possessing spiritual discernment is as necessary to a congregation as an immune system is to the body. Listen to Ephesians 5, 6 through 11. Paul warns the church. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. So notice it's their voice. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. He's speaking about false teachers. He says, do not take them on in a partnership of ministry. Do not give them a platform. Do not receive them into the household of faith. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is the duty of the household of faith to so know their Savior's voice that they can discern empty words of deceit and not become partners with them, but instead expose them and stand aside from them. So this application cuts two ways. One, if you are God's sheep, then you are charged with knowing, recognizing, and submitting to God's voice in his word. If you are God's sheep, you are charged with knowing, recognizing, and submitting to God's voice in his word. But secondly, God's sheep do know his voice so well that they will not submit to another voice in the same way. So here are at least two marks of false teachers. The first is, as we see in this passage, false teachers do not come in by the door. They don't come in by the door. That means they're not obvious. That means they don't announce themselves. Hello, my name is Gordon, and I'm a false teacher. I'd like to lead you into deceit today. Mostly, I'd just like to get your money, but on the way, you'll have a good time, so don't worry. Right? That's not how a false teacher introduces himself. So they're not obvious. They don't announce themselves. What do they do? They avoid the gospel. A certain main preacher, I hesitate to even call him that, once watched an interview with him. I'll spare his name to protect the guilty for the moment. And asked what it was that he believed and what it was that he preached. I think he used the phrase, I don't know, more than any other set of words. Just to get around the gospel. False teachers will avoid the gospel. They will mishandle scripture. They'll just pull it out of context. Uh, Roger was talking about that this morning. If you were in Sunday school, you got a great lesson in that. Paul warns the church in Galatians 1, 6 through 7. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So false teachers approach the fold not by the gate of the true gospel, not by the door of Jesus Christ, not looking to the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. And instead, they climb over the wall. They rely on myths, superstitions, or base human sensuality. You can look across the New Testament, and you'll see various kinds of false teachers. We don't have time this morning to read all of them, but just one example. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, you hear, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, what they want. 
And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So how do they climb over the wall? Myths. Sensible sayings, culturally appropriated ideas. When you hear someone who is quick to emphasize their own cleverness, slow to glorify Christ, and who cultivates what naturally occurs in the heart of a human being, beware. It does not take a born-again heart to want to be wealthy, healthy, comfortable, or powerful. Everyone you meet wants to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable, and powerful. That is not a regenerate affection. It takes a newborn heart to want self-control, to want to be kind, to want to love, to express patience, to walk in humility, to place the glory of God above their own. Because ultimately, false teachers are only interested in what they can get from the sheep. That's all they're there for. A sense of success, financial gain, I suppose I'll say politely, or something more sinister. So that's the second mark. False teachers fleece the sheep. False teachers are motivated by and they succumb ultimately to their own game. They're motivated by their own game and they ultimately succumb to it. I don't know what Ravi Zacharias' heart held in it and I'm not his judge. But ultimately it would appear from the outside that his heart succumbed to his own game. False teachers are motivated by or ultimately succumb to their own gain. That's what Jude means when he says false teachers have, quote, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam, as I know our children were learning a few weeks ago, Balaam was a false prophet who loved money more than God. And he was willing to curse God's people and to lead them into sexual idolatry for the sake of a fortune. Now, wealth does not necessarily cause heresy, and just because a man is wealthy doesn't mean he's a heretic. But false teachers are simply enticed by wealth, by pleasure, by success, and by power. So then the next point of application is, what's the best way to discern and avoid a false teacher? Well, it's to treasure God's word. Treasure God's word. Look again in verses 2 and 4. The sheep hear and obey the voice of Christ. And this doesn't mean that Christians, once they become Christian, can suddenly hear a disembodied voice that nobody else can hear. And if you, if you do hear a disembodied voice that no one else can hear, we might need to help you with that. <laughs> this means Christians are so familiar with God's word that they will, as Romans 12 verse 2 says, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In our household, we're memorizing Psalm 1, Psalm 100. In Psalm 1, we read, they meditate day and night on God's word. In Psalm 119, we would hear that they treasure in their hearts so they might not sin. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, they treat it like purest silver. I'm sure you have heard that the determinant counterfeit you study the genuine product and not the aberration. And so it is with God's voice. You come to hear and obey the word of the Lord by immersing yourself in it, memorizing it, reading it daily, praying it back to God, submitting to sound teaching, saturating yourself with God's word. 
If Jesus, when combating with the devil, knew that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, how much more should we? That's the best way to defend yourself against the false teacher. Third mark, then, is there is only one gospel. As you study God's word, you will see that there is only one gospel. Look at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If false teachers climb over the wall in order to access our heart, then these are those who imagine that they may profit from Christ's protection by some other means besides submitting to his gospel. This is someone who thinks that they can obtain God's favor, that they can find protection from the wrath of God, that they can see themselves changed and transformed some other way than submitting to the gospel, some other way than repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. I love Pilgrim's Progress, so you're getting another Pilgrim's Progress illustration. In Pilgrim's Progress, which is a story about one man's spiritual journey, his journey truly begins when he loses his burden of sin at the foot of the cross. And he's on his way to the celestial city. And he has a lot of travels. On his travels, he meets two men, formalist and hypocrisy, who, while they are on the same road, did not come by way of the cross. And I think the conversation is helpful. Christian says, why came you not in at the gate, which stands at the beginning of the way? Know you not that it is written that he who comes not in by the door but climbs up some other way, that same is a thief and a robber. They said, well, to go to the gates for entrance was by all their countrymen counted too far about, and that therefore their usual way was to make a shortcut of it, climb over the wall, as they had done. Christian says, but will it not be counted a trespass against the Lord of the city, whither we are bound, thus to violate his revealed will? They told him that, as for that, he need not to trouble his head thereabout, for they did not, for what they did, they had custom for, and could produce, if need were, testimony that would witness it for more than a thousand years. They told him that custom would doubtless now be admitted as a thing legal by any impartial judge. And besides, said they, if we get into the way, what matter is it which way we get in? If we are in, we are in. You are but in the way who, as we perceive, came in at the gate. We are also in the way that came tumbling over the wall. Wherein now is your condition better than ours? Christian said, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancy. You are counted thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you will be not found true men at the end of the way, you come in by yourselves without his direction, and you shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. Friend, while many of us encounter Christ in many ways, yet we all must come through the same gate, the gate of repentance and faith in the one gospel of Jesus Christ. Some may fancy themselves a sheep of God's flock because of their behavior or because of their temperament or because of their charity, or because of their ancestry. But only those who have been born again by God's Spirit confess themselves as helpless sinners, trusted solely in Christ, 
and who walk in ever-increasing obedience, only these are the true members of his household. And that means that we cannot play fast and loose with the gospel of Jesus. There's only one gospel. There is only one Christ. There is only one door. We can't change it. It's not ours to change. Paul says to the Galatians, again, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Friends, even if the angel Moroni shows up and gives you another gospel, that is not the true gospel. If Paul himself were to appear and preach another gospel, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one gospel, there is one door, there is one shepherd, one flock, one Lord, God and Father of all, and we must go through that one door because our last application is that Jesus is the good shepherd. He leads us into joy. The main point of this passage is to show us how the people of Christ hear his voice and follow him into his joy. The passage is pointing us to Jesus. It's inviting us to follow his voice into the riches of his grace. So just two more things. Jesus goes ahead of us, and Jesus leads us into all joy. Jesus goes ahead of us, and Jesus leads us into all joy. Look at verses three and four. Jesus goes ahead of us. It says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own shape by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Friend, Jesus already knows where he's leading us, because he's already been there. He's literally been everywhere he's going to take you. He's been there. When you go into the river of death, Jesus has already been there. He knows the coldness of those waters. When you endure estrangement from culture and society, Jesus has already been there. He knows what that feels like. When your own family rejects you, Jesus has already been there. He knows what that feels like. And nowhere that Jesus calls you to go has Jesus not already gone. He is already there. He's not saying, go do this thing over there. I'm sure you'll be fine. He goes with you. He leads you. Jesus already knows where he's leading us. We will never go anywhere the shepherd has not already traveled. We can go on in life by fixing our eyes and ears on the face and voice of Jesus, knowing that, too, Jesus leads us into all joy. Because the deepest question that you have is, well, where are you leading me? Look at the end of verse 10. Whole sermon's been preached on this. I came that they may have life have it abundantly. Where is Jesus leading us? To abundant life. Jesus is not a thief. I know that some of you might think so, and certainly that's, the world, that's how the world describes him. The world says he's a thief. He's come to steal your pleasure from you. He's come to take away from you all those things that you were meant to have. Don't give Jesus those things. Don't let him into your life. He's a thief. But friend, he's not a thief. He's the good shepherd. He's not interested in his own pleasure. He's not a killjoy. He's not keeping you from better pastures. He is the better pasture. He is not only the door to good life, he is that life. 
He's not telling you how to find the good life. He is it. He says, come to him if you're thirsty and drink off of him. He says, come to him if you're hungry and eat off him. He says, he is that life and only he can give it to you. He is not just the door. He is that life itself. So perhaps we can conclude, and I'll, unfortunately I'll be quoting from the ESV, but you can still probably say most of it in your heart. Only in Jesus can we say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, how much we desire to enter into that good life. Do you now, the good shepherd, so know us and so call us, each and every one, that our ears become attentive to your voice and let your voice rise above the din of every other voice that seeks to compete for our affections. And let our heart and our affections and our desires align with that voice. Lord, lead us through the gate of your sacrifice by means of repentance and into that bountiful and eternal life, that life that stretches out limitlessly and rest us in your good pasture. All good things come from you, Father. So bring us into the wealth of your righteousness by the mercy that is made available in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, if you're able, please stand with us. I'm going to sing a version of Psalm 23.